Good job, Kristen. And if you don't know, she's mostly blind, so it's a, it's a special feat. Well, welcome to 2022, and welcome to James. After Matt, where are you? Yeah, so what's here. the deal with this phone right here? It's, Just don't touch it. Well, I kind of need to, I feel like, but all right. Um, you can move it. You can having, put it under if you want. I can put it like here? If you want. It's not going to pick this well. Like that? Sure. I don't know. Is it recording? Yeah. Audio? Yeah. Interesting. All right. <laughs> so having spent nearly four years now preaching through Old Testament books, Hosea, and then Ruth, and and Genesis, it's good to be back in the New Testament. Likewise, having spent the better part of those four years in narrative, it's good to be back in a letter. Of course, all of God's word is God's word and good to be in, but God has wired me for whatever reason, such that I have always felt more at home in the letters. There isn't uh, a clear structure to James. James isn't like the other letters in the New Testament, but it is sweet nonetheless. It can feel more like Proverbs, a a collection of Proverbs than a traditional letter. And yet the things I appreciate most about letters are all in here, especially the pastoral tone uh, and the shepherding purposes. I, I hope to help you see all of that. Well, in this first and introductory sermon on James, my aim's I I just have a couple of names. First, to set you up well for the text-specific sermons that are to come. We're going to go verse by verse through James, and getting this broad overview is meant to help set you up well, to see the whole. That's why we had Chris to read the whole thing, so that as we go through verse by verse, you can have that bigger picture in mind. And then secondly, to help you see some of the unique glory that is in, in James. Well, to do that, to accomplish those two purposes... I'm going to answer three questions. I'm going to do my best from the text to answer three questions. Number one, who was James? Who is this guy? Number two, what prompted him to write this letter? Why why do we even have this? What was the purpose behind it? And third, what does James look like from high up? What's, what's the overall theme and message? And what are the overall characteristics of James? As I do these things, I think you'll see, and I'll, I'll of course get into this more in a bit, but... The, the banner over all of James, over this entire letter, is that God's glory is such that to claim to, that we must not claim to believe in him if we do not live in obedience to him. So let me say that again. You're going to hear that over and over. That's why the, the tagline up here is, be not hearers only. Let me say that again. God's glory is such that, James James helps us to see, that God's glory is such that we must not claim to believe in him, or as James says, to have faith in him, real, real genuine, non-demonic faith in him, if we do not live in obedience to him. And, and obviously that needs to be unpacked, and I look forward to doing that with you. But I, I think that's the main banner over all of this. So let's pray that God would get glory, and we would get help for godliness, to be not merely hearers, but doers also, faithful doers. Through the sermon and the ones that follow. That is through this particular text. Let's pray. God, thank you for all of your word, from Genesis to Revelation. Thank you for all the genres, for all the authors, for all the contexts, for all the times, for all the occasions, for all the points of emphasis. 
for all the unique characteristics. We thank you for all of it. We thank you that it's not merely interesting, but inspired. And not merely inspired, but inerrant. And not merely inerrant, but sufficient. We thank you so much for that. We thank you that as you've wired each of us, each of us can resonate with different books of the Bible or different types of writing. And because of our circumstances, different themes in the different books of the Bible speak to us in different ways. I was very thankful for a church like ours that takes doctrine seriously and therefore for books like James that keep us in our place. We cannot just be hearers. We cannot just be people who love to have our ears tickled, even by good doctrine, but that we can always know whether we're truly believing the good doctrine we receive by the way we respond to it. We can always know the authenticity of our faith by whether or not it transforms us. We love you, God, and we thank you for this text. I pray that you would help all of us to see this the way you mean us to, and that these next several minutes in the sermon would be a means to that end. God, help me to say nothing that isn't there and to say what is there in the way that you would have us hear it. Help me to explain what it meant then and also the implications for us today. Let us truly see your glory in new ways and be transformed formed today by the power of your spirit through the working of your word. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's not much, right? Just praying for a few small things that God would do. But the letter opens with a fairly traditional greeting. In the first line, the author identifies himself as, you see it, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question we ought to ask is, well, which James or who is James? The question takes up more room in the commentaries than I was expecting. I, I, I read a lot and a lot and a lot in the last few weeks. Thanks to Pastor Mike for preaching last week, so I could, or two weeks ago, so I could be, so I could prepare for this. I read a lot, and it, there were a few things that stood out, and one of them was how much time was spent on who the author is. It seems, although of course there's some measure of controversy to this even, that there were four, or at least four, Jameses in the New Testament. And and interestingly, if you want to jot this down or even turn there really quickly, in Acts 1.13, we see three of them. Uh, When choosing a replacement for for Judas the betrayer, uh, we read this. Uh, uh, And when they had entered, went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John And James, that's one of them, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, that's two, uh, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, not to be confused with the betrayer, the son of James. That's, That's the third in just one verse. Well, James, the brother of Jesus, is the fourth New Testament James. In Matthew 14, 55, as the leaders of the synagogue were rejecting the authority of Jesus and trying to show the reasonableness of the rejection, they exclaimed, uh, are, are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't, aren't, isn't that who we're dealing with here, this man who has these men as brothers? Largely based on the relative obscurity uh, in history of two of the four Jameses, The age of the Jameses, which we know of, compared to the date of the letter, 
and also the near universal understanding of the early church, it has long been accepted that the author of this letter is James, the brother of Jesus. Well, as Jesus' brother, James, would have had a lifelong, up-close view of Jesus. How many of you have siblings? I have a sister. She loves me. I think it's safe to say she has a good deal of respect for me, but I can promise you, I can promise you that if I began to make claims about being the sinless son of God, she would clear her voice, (laughs) clear her throat. And rather than writing a letter to affirm my claims, she would share with you, humbly I'm sure, a laundry list of stories that would shatter any sliver of belief that any of you foolishly had that my claims might have been true. In other words, the fact that James, eventually, as we'll see in a second, accepted Jesus, his own brother, as the Christ, is no small thing. If you have a sibling, you understand. It's interesting, though, that James is said not to have become fully convinced of Jesus that Jesus was the Christ until after the resurrection. In John 7, 5, we're told not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. We don't know why that was. Did their parents, for some reason that we're not told, not tell the rest of the kids about the miraculous birth? Were Jesus' brothers simply hard-hearted earlier on? Did God keep them, for some reason, from understanding what they were growing up with and seeing? We simply don't know. But what we do know, though, is that after Jesus' resurrection, James did believe and quickly rose to a place of prominence in the early Jerusalem church. When Peter was rescued from prison, he made sure, we're told in Acts 12, that James knew of what God had done. James was at the Jerusalem council and in some ways led it, where it was decided that the Gentiles did not need to obey the law of Moses in Acts 15. Paul singled out James among the church leaders in Jerusalem to hear his report on what God had done and been doing among the Gentiles in Acts 21. James was numbered among the apostles by Paul in Galatians 1.19. Paul, in fact, called James, the brother of Jesus, one of the pillars of the early church in Galatians 2.9. James was even prominent enough to intimidate Peter, we're told in Galatians 2.12. Again, then, the first significant thing for us to understand this letter, if we're going to understand it piece by piece when we work through it, is that it was written by James, Jesus' half-brother, a skeptic early on, but later a leader within the church. And all of that leads to the second question. What prompted him to write this? All of the letters in the Bible are occasional. That means they were written for a purpose, to accomplish some specific thing or set of things. What was that for James? Why did he write this? Well, again, according to custom, before we get to that specific purpose, it were helped by knowing who the specific audience was. The letter opens with the identification of both the author and the recipients. It says, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. If this sounds familiar, other books in the Bible talk this way as well. It might be in particular because of the beginning of Peter's first letter, which is also addressed to some type of dispersion. This was probably James's way of addressing several churches under his care. But the fact that he specifically mentions the 12 tribes, along with the actual content of the letter, strongly indicates that James was writing primarily to Jewish Christians who were spread abroad. As to the actual purpose, then, 
it seems that James was inspired by God to correct some of the, and there's three terms that would be good for you to learn as we work through James. One is antinomian, uh, fancy word that just means no law or anti-law. So antinomianism was a, a problem in the early church. Another one is orthodoxy, and a third one is orthopraxy. I'll come back to those last two in a minute. But this antinomian problem in the early church uh, was, uh, the the apostles all had to deal with this. And I'll tell you what I mean. In Acts, or in in Romans chapter 6, Paul in 1 through 5 had laid out a pretty radical idea. Namely, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To to us, at least if you've been at Grace Church for a while. That's not new. That's that's probably not all that radical at this point. But at that point, it was. And so on the heels of that, Paul was anticipating certain objections because he'd already experienced these objections. And he said, does that mean then that we're to continue sinning, that grace may abound? In other words, if I'm saved by grace through faith and God gets glory for showing grace... Doesn't it make sense that I would just sin all the time? Like embrace sin because God gives more grace then and then he gets more glory. Doesn't, doesn't, that, doesn't that make sense? Well, it makes sense, but it's a lie. By no means, he says. This is Paul in 6, 6.2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So let's back up a little bit more. The point to see for us right here is that for centuries, the Jews believed that right standing with God came from being a descendant of Abraham and, and us having just come out of Genesis, we, we can understand why, a descendant of Abraham and obeying the law of Moses. Those two things coming together were what made people in their minds in right standing with God. Well, the New Testament doctrine then of cross one grace understandably left the early church needing to explain some things, especially whether or not Christians then needed to be concerned with personal holiness. What what role then, if our holiness is not the basis of our salvation as we thought for so long, what role, if any then, does personal holiness have in the life of a Christian? Does that make sense? Like That's a really important question. If, if it isn't, through your holiness or your good works, that you are in right standing with God. What role, what what do we need to care about that for then? Or what role does that play in our lives? It's a reasonable question to ask. In the early church, or at least people in and around the early church, got it wrong in a lot of ways. In right and only one. And so with a pastoral heart and pastoral authority, under the inspiration of God, James wrote his epistle largely to correct one of the more common wrong explanations of the relationship between grace, faith, and obedience to God, or conformity to God's nature and character. Specifically, a big reason for the book of James, the big reason why he wrote this letter, is to address the unbiblical belief that Christians need not not concern themselves with walking in obedience to God because their faith is all they need. Antinomianism. There is no law. It doesn't matter anymore. Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Therefore, there is no law of any sort that we need to conform to. That was the lie that James was trying to correct. He was writing to correct in the church. 
In one of the two most pointed admonitions of that nature, James urged his readers to be, and again, that's the tagline for the series, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you are, he says, you are deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself that your faith is real, that you have actual salvation in Christ, that you are reconciled to God. You deceive yourselves. If all you do is hear, but don't do, you deceive yourselves to think you're saved. And in one of the most challenging ones, and one of the ones, the passages that gets brought up the most, we see this as well. It's in chapter 2, 17 and 18. He says this, faith by itself, now this needs to rattle you a little bit. I'm not going to unpack it this morning. You got to stick around until chapter two, whatever that is. But you got to get this. You got to feel this. You have to hear this carefully. James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Wait a minute. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith in this, not as a result of works. Okay, wait a minute, that's tricky, right? But James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And he goes on, that's not it. But if someone, uh, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. I say, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's a big deal. We're going to come to that later. But the point is, that's the banner over which um, this whole letter was written. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Most of his letter explains the kind of doing, be not hearers only, but doers also. Most of this letter explains the kind of doing, the kind of faith-proving works that he has in mind. So in short, James wrote this letter largely to admonish his readers for claiming to have saving faith apart from the kind of good works saving faith always produces. And that leads us to the final question. What does this letter look like from high up? Big picture, Way, way up above. One of the neat things of like Google Earth and drones um, is that we get a lay of the land that no one in human history has ever had before the last century or so. We, we get to see what our property looks like from above or, or the whole earth looks like from above. And, and it really can help us get our bearings. If you've ever backpacked or hiked, to be able to pull up your GPS on your phone and see where you are in the whole scheme of things, that's a pretty sweet thing if, if you're lost, especially. Well, that's what I mean to do in this last section, is what does James look like from high up? Again, if you've been at Grace, and especially if you've been at Berea, the, the, our Berea teachers have done an awesome job of helping us to see you need to ask four questions every time you come to the text. Number one, what was the author's original intent? What, what was, in any given passage, what did James or Paul or Peter or whomever what did they mean their first audience to understand by the words that they wrote? Second question is, how does that passage, that verse or that paragraph you're studying, fit into the whole of the book or letter that it, that it belongs in? So if we look at any verse in James, we have to understand how it fits into all of James. That's what, we're, that's what I want to do right now, is give you the big picture high up so that you can better understand how each verse fits into that. I'll tell you the other two questions later. So each, each book of the Bible has some unique characteristics. Many of us are drawn to Psalms. I love that Kyle, I think that's all he preaches on anymore. It's the Psalms. He's the Psalm guy. Uh, but many of us are drawn to the Psalms because of their depth of and direction for emotion. If, if you're a person of big feelings like me, 
uh, then, then you, you love the Psalms because it, it shapes your feelings and directs your feelings and shows you the rightness of the feelings that God has given. Likewise, Genesis is unique and, and often attractive because of its foundational teaching. It's the basis on which everything else is built. The Proverbs are especially helpful for, for practical living. Huh? How do I know what to do with my life? Well, the Proverbs are great for that. Romans is been the go-to book for many in the Bible because of how clearly it explains the gospel and its implications. Chapters 1 through 11 is the gospel. 12 through 16 is therefore. Now act this way. Well, James has a number of unique features that make it a very significant book for many as well. Let me name just three of them. First, James deals with very practical aspects of the Christian faith. There are... Uh, J.I. Packer, in, in the introduction to Knowing God, he tells the story that basically all of us are fairly neatly divided between balconiers and streetwalkers. And so the balconiers sit up top, they see the whole lay of the city, they can see traffic patterns and potholes that people keep tripping in. They, they see this car tearing down the road and the person walking around the corner who doesn't yet see it, there's a big building there, well, up in the balcony they see it, he says the church needs these people. The church needs people to see from high up and recognize issues earlier on. And Well, then there are also streetwalkers, people down on the street doing work on the ground. And, and their, their problems are real. They, they often miss higher up things because they're busy doing and serving and caring for and loving while up, up top. Okay, so here, here's the deal. James, for those of you who are more naturally inclined to be streetwalkers, just, okay, that's enough, that's enough talking, Pastor Dave. Let's, let's do this. I mean, I, I get it. Let's care for the poor. I don't, I don't need an hour sermon to tell me that if someone needs food, in Christ's name, I should bring it to them. So let's go bring them the food. Some of you are wired that way, and I praise God for that. Well, James is largely attractive to people like that, who are wired in that way. It's, it's really practical. It's not primarily a book of theories or concepts. Likewise, James does not teach a great deal of, of theology. James assumes most of the doctrine that undergirds the commands that he gives. Does that make sense? That's an important feature in James. Is he's not necessarily teaching a lot of the doctrine. He's assuming it and then telling you how to live it out. So James focuses on what good doctrine looks like in practice. For that reason, it probably shouldn't surprise you, and I'm going to... I'm going to blast you with some of these in just a little bit. But James has more imperatives, commands per word than any other book in the Bible. All the books in the Bible, 66 of them, James has more imperative commands per word than any other book. It also shouldn't surprise us that James uses simple language, concise language, and, and uh, many simple illustrations. Simply, James describes and prescribes orthopraxy. That's the, that's the second word you need to get to understand James, which means right living. Orthopraxy is right practice, right doing. James describes and prescribes right, right, or orthopraxy more than orthodoxy, which is right thinking. He's not indifferent to orthodoxy. He just talks more about orthopraxy, assuming the orthodoxy. And so that's number one. A second interesting aspect of James from high up is that he refers to the teaching of Jesus more than any other biblical author. 
if you read the Sermon on the Mount and James's epistle together, you'll notice a number of unmistakable parallels and similarities. Again, this probably shouldn't surprise us, as Jesus was his brother, who would have been able to hear him or would have heard him, heard Jesus more than James. And third, as I noted in the introduction, there is no clear-cut, agreed-upon structure to James. All right, I want you to think for a second about whatever sort of your world consists of. There's some version of what I'm about to say in your world. And I'm going to give you one example because I couldn't think of a better one. But I guarantee your your world has a version of this. So, you know, there's t- uh, movies and whatever, Goodwill Hunting, for example. If you're a mathematician, if that's going to be your your thing, inevitably, probably fairly early on, you're going to be shown a few math problems that no one has ever been able to prove yet. And, and you're going to uh, tinker around with it. You're going to try. You, you probably you know you're not going to be able to do it since no one else has done it yet. But there are problems out there that need to be solved that no one has been able to solve. And it's sort of a rite of passage to try in a joke about how no one can figure out whatever is paradox. Okay, well, it seems to me, and having read six or seven commentaries, that trying to come up with an outline to James is one of those things. They all agree that you can't do it, but we're going to try anyway. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to come up with some cute little new way to present this. There is no clear-cut agreed-upon structure to James. There's some neat observations that people have made, uh, but no one agrees on how exactly this is put together. And, and I'm telling you, there's some creative answers to this. Well, I'm going to try <laughs> because, you know, that's what I'm going to do. Not, not really. I don't claim to have it figured out, but I do think there are some things that are important for us to see. And here's how I'm going to finish the sermon. Number one, there is one main banner over James. And if you have the sermon outline, this is on there. There's one main banner. I've already named it. I'm going to say it a little more clearly. Number two, there are six main principles in James that hold that banner up. So so picture this big sign, this big banner, and then there's six main posts holding that sign up. And then out of those two things, the main banner and in and among the, the posts or the pillars, there are all kinds of commands, all kinds of requirements that God gives through James to his people. And then lastly, each of those things, all of that together, the first three, highlights a unique aspect of the glory of God that we see at least more clearly in James than anything else. And so that's, that's how I'm going to close this morning is those four things. One banner, six, six principles, many commands, unique glory. So here's the banner. Said it before, say it again. I'm going to say it probably most sermons going forward on James. Saving faith always produces godly action. Saving faith always produces godly action. Say it with me. Saving faith always produces godly action. You've got to lock that in. Therefore, God's people, followers of Jesus, must not be people who merely hear what God has said. We must not be people who content ourselves with simply understanding the truth of God's word. Instead, James teaches that we must be people who fight to obey it at all, in all ways, at all times, as the Spirit strengthens us. We must be people who understand, hear this, 
that saving grace is always accompanied by sanctifying grace. Saving grace is always accompanied by sanctifying grace. Being a Christian, according to James, and and the rest of the Bible, but James highlights this for us in a unique way. Being a Christian, according to James, means acting like a Christian. And we got to unpack that, especially in light of what Paul has said. That's why I'm going to preach slowly through James, but you got to get that. All right, but that also means something as well. Hear this. James doesn't state the inverse explicitly, like I'm about to, but he certainly believes it and means it. He does not say, be doers, not hearers. So he says, don't don't be hearers only, but be doers also. That is not the same as saying, do not be hearers, be only doers. That's really important. Our doing must flow for James and for all of us from our hearing. Our doing has to flow from our hearing. You can't do what pleases God apart from having heard from God what pleases him. And so grace, our doing must always flow from our hearing. Many, like those to whom James was writing, struggle to put the things God has told them. They've heard it, they know it, but they're struggling to put it into practice or or at least understand how putting it into practice relates to their Christian faith. But while that's not good, it's equally bad to struggle to put into practice the things God has told us. What what do I mean by that? To just do things that we've made up and said that they're pleasing to God. There's a lot of churches meeting right now this morning that are spending their time doing that, claiming to have a form of righteousness, but it does not come from hearing the word of God. Both are wrong, and James needs us, urges us, commands us to keep both in mind. And so it is a counterfeit form of Christianity to know what God has said but fail to do it and claim to be a Christian. And it is a different form of counterfeit to do good works and got good works in God's name that God has not named. <laughs> you with me? Both matter to James. We must avoid both counterfeit forms, and that's why James wrote. That's the man. Instead, authentic Christianity means listening carefully to the word of God, being hearers, and then putting them into practice continuously, being doers also. James wrote this letter largely to insist that both elements, in that order, hearing then doing, are necessary aspects of authentic Christian faith. That's the banner. Six pillars holding that banner up. Number one, Christians trust God during trials. If you listened at all when Krista was reading, you heard that. We'll see this several times in James. You cannot claim to be a Christian, James argues, if your Christian faith does not shape the way you think about and endure hardship. At the heart of the Christian's patient endurance and suffering is the belief that all suffering is temporary, for the return of the Lord is at hand, and with it, the end of all suffering for all of the faithful. That's the first main pillar. Christians trust in God during trials. The second is this. Christians look to God as the source of all wisdom. Christians look to God as the source of all wisdom. Get this. This is James' argument. I'll unpack it more later. But living in a fallen world, especially as a Christian, means that we will endure trials. So the first pillar was when you when you encounter them, your faith in Christ shapes practically the way you the way you respond. Well, the point here is that living in the world that we live in, you will encounter them. It's not a matter of if, but when. And the second big pillar or 
principle for James is that knowing how to endure those difficulties in a manner pleasing to God requires a kind of wisdom that comes only from God. And so we can't seek it anywhere else. James will help us to understand that we look to God for the wisdom we need to to live in this world in a manner pleasing to God, especially the hard parts of it. You with me, Grace? None of us have that naturally, that kind of wisdom, and so we seek it in God and in God alone, a kind that God is eager to give to all who seek it in him. Here's the third pillar. Christians are humble and associate with the humble. Christians are humble. You can't miss this in James. He says it in four or five different ways. To truly understand the most basic claims of Christianity, if you have even the most childlike understanding of what it means to be a Christian, you understand that God is great and you are not. <laughs> that God that God is glorious and powerful and holy beyond comprehension, and you are sinful and dependent and needy and contingent. Therefore, the third pillar of James, the third big principle, is that Christians are by nature humble. You cannot understand who God is and who you are and not be a humble person. You cannot be proud and have seen God in his glory or yourself, therefore, in your sin. So again, James is going to help us to see this. Christians are by nature humble people and eager then to associate with humble people and especially those who feel their humility due to their lowly circumstances, like the poor and the sick and the otherwise vulnerable. James has a special word for how humble people who follow Jesus respond to humble people who know they're humble because of their hardships in life. Here's number four. Christians understand that all good things come from God. The fourth big principle, banner, banner holding pillar for James, is the simple fact that we know that if we want anything good, it is to be found in God alone. We recognize and therefore live out the reality that there is one place and only one place where goodness is to be good. Goodness is to be seen. Here's number five: Christians talk in godly ways. Another impossible to miss pillar of James. Christians speak Christianly. To be a Christian is to have been given a new heart. Well, that comes with a bonus gift. You know, picture the guy in the infomercial. But wait, there's more. You don't just get a new heart. You get a a, a renewing tongue, a, a tongue that is being renewed. Where we once spoke harshly and critically and angrily and gossiply, We now speak words of encouragement and grace, according to James. God is transforming our speech because he's transformed our hearts. We don't talk the way we used to. Christians talk differently than non-Christians. And therefore, to claim to be a Christian, James argues, without a Christian mouth is to be a liar. Number six, lastly, here's the sixth uh, pillar. Christians reject the ways of the world. Very similar to 1 John here. Uh, The final pillar and principle that holds up the main banner in James is that Christians actively and consistently reject the ways of the world. To be a Christian is to be an enemy of the world. So again, James is largely about doing, the doing that results from hearing and the folly of claiming to be a Christian apart from that doing. And one of the main ways that happens is by rejecting the world. This is one of the most important doings for James. There is simply no compatibility for him 
between claiming to follow Jesus and love for the world. So here they are again. Here are the six. Christians trust God during trials. Christians look to God as the source of all wisdom. Christians are humble and associate with the humble. Christians understand that all good things come from God. Christians talk in godly ways, and Christians reject the ways of the world. And from that come all of the commands. You ready? I'm going to just blast you with some of the commands. Just hear the scope. Hear the breadth of the commands in James. I'm not going to give them all. There's more, but I'm going to give you a bunch. Just hear these. Test your heart against them. Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Let steadfastness have its full effect. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. Ask for wisdom and faith and not doubting. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Show no partiality. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Do not speak evil against one another. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If you're rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts. Do not grumble against one another. Do not swear, either by heaven above or by another oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That's just some of them. They're over and over and over throughout James. We need to see them all. These give you a good idea of the kinds of actions that James understands to be essential to genuine Christian faith. Once again, James does not teach that obeying these things makes you a Christian, but he absolutely teaches that doing them is essential proof that you are a Christian. I hope to help you see in the coming weeks that it truly is a gift of God to give us the kind of assurance of salvation and wisdom for life, a life pleasing to him that we find in these commands. So here's the last thing, the glory of God. The final aspect of James's big picture that I want to highlight for you this morning is the way in which James uniquely highlights a particular aspect of the glory of God. Perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, James reveals that the glory of God is such that he always gives sanctifying grace with saving grace. That is so critical. And I have a, have a really nifty diagram to show you that when the time comes. But God always gives sanctifying grace with saving grace. God's people have both or you have neither. That's a big deal. I hope to help impress upon you how big of a deal that is. You either have saving and sanctifying grace and a few others, or you have neither. If you don't have both, James argues, you don't have either. Among other things, James helps us to see the greatness of the God, the greatness of God, the glory of God, and that his saving work is greater than merely getting us out of hell. That would be great, but it's greater than that. 
It's greater than even merely getting us out of hell and into heaven. That'd be great, but it's greater still. It's greater than merely getting us out of hell and into heaven and even in God's favor, which is more awesome yet. James helps us to see that the glorious salvation of God means all of those things, but also that we are being remade by God into the kind of people that God made us to be in every way. Every desire will be right and for him. Every weakness done away with. It is one kind of glory to create. It is another kind to rescue creation from rebellion. And it is another kind, the kind that James is particularly interested in shining a light on, that recreates battered and bruised and broken and corrupted creatures like us into fullness of life. What a glorious God we have that wants such good for his rebellious, treasonous creatures and works all things together to bring that about. James helps to see to see this glory in a way that no other book in the Bible does. So really glad to be in James with you all. My main hope and prayer, I'm going to say that right now in conclusion, three different ways. My main hope and prayer, as the tagline says, be not hearers only, is that you take all of the sound doctrine you've ever been able to gather together at Grace Church or at family worship or at another church or in your quiet times or wherever you've gathered sound doctrine from and seek the Spirit's help in a new way to live it out. Say it again. My main hope and prayer is to help you see in James that to be a Christian is to know the truth of the gospel, but to know that you know the truth of the gospel by the way it impacts your life. My main hope and prayer is that we would all grow in the Holy Spirit conviction that claiming to believe something as awesome as the gospel without it producing fundamentally different attitudes and actions in us is the fake Christianity of the demons. I lied. I said three. There's four. My main hope and prayer is that the Lord of glory would grant us, all of us, every one of us, the kind of faith that results in ever-growing holiness for the glory of the Lord.